is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of February 6th through 10th, 2023. And we have we have some Jeopardy to talk about. But before we get into that, how are you doing this week, Kyle? Much better than last week. Yes. Uh, listening listening back to last week's episodes, I sounded a lot worse than I thought I did. Mm-hmm. Um, thought I was masking it pretty well. I was not. I had strep throat, <laughs> and so did the entire rest of my family. Maybe I gave it to them. Maybe I got it from them. Who knows? It but we really all matter. had it. And at this point, we're all on antibiotics. So Yay. we're all doing great. A miracle of modern medicine. Hooray. Yes. Good old penicillin. People look at me like I'm crazy when I say this. But by the time you are at the doctor's office getting the strep throat swab, I'm always hoping that I have strep throat. Oh, yeah. Because you feel terrible. That that's that part is set in stone. And then the question is, is it something that they can give you antibiotics for and you will feel 100% better in 24 hours? Or is it, oh, must be a virus. You know, drink lots yes. of fluids, should go away in a few days, call me if it doesn't. Exactly, yes, because the like the, the nurse and doctor, like they, they did the swab and then came back in and said, well, it's positive, and we don't know if that's good news for you or not. I was like, that's very good news. It's great news. There's a pill for that. Yeah. because There's a sp- pill and there's a specific timeline and it's a short timeline. Exactly. Like, and, and even if it was a long timeline, we know what it is. Mm-hmm. The worst thing I I deal with when I'm sick is the doctor being like, well, you know, that's just something viral. You got to wait it out or like, we're not sure or 10 days. Yeah. Or it's not a, it's not an, like, it's not an infection. It's just, it's just, you know, the weather or, you know, (laughs) like something like you just, you're just going to have to wait it out and like try to treat the symptoms. I, Mm -hmm. when I get that, I'm like, no, you're supposed to, you're supposed Mm -hmm. to give me a medicine or cut something out of me. Mm-hmm. Okay, there there is supposed to be an actionable solution to this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I live in the 21st century. There is absolutely no excuse for me to not feel well and you to say I just have to deal with it. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I'm with you. So um, anyway, yes. So that's where I am. How are you? Cool. I'm doing all right. I oh, gosh. How how am I doing? I'm fine. How are any of us doing? Yeah, I cannot believe that it's February. It has been for a third of February. At this I point. know, I know. But hey, that's apparently, that's that's how life goes, I guess. I accidentally wrote 2012 recently. Wow. And my hand was on was like shifted one left on the keyboard. But I looked uh-huh. at it and was like, I don't think it's 2012 anymore. <laughs> 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 but you had to think about it. But I had to think about it. It was very strange to realize I'm at, at the point in life where like I'm like, oh, well, that was actually 10, 11 years ago. It was um, actually not that long ago, but actually it was that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was it was a while. But hey, I'll be I'll be headed out on vacation in a little over a week. So pretty excited nice. about that. Yeah. Nice. Yes. We are going to go do Rainforesty zipliney things. Yay! Yeah, it's gonna Fun. be great. Yeah. Well, hey, should we talk about Jeopardy? 
I think oh, we should we talk? Yeah, yeah. We oh, well, we should talk about video games. <laughs> How uh, are your video games? Good. I finished Orion the Will of the Wisps. Mm-hmm. Fine ending. I will say I haven't really talked about it, but the music in the Ori games is absolutely astounding. Mm. Might be the best part. It's really great. Even the mm. soundtrack just by itself, like not playing the game. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Yes, highly recommend. Mm-hmm. And I started playing Hades. Oh, nice. Yeah. How's it, it going for you? Good. I am enjoying it a lot. So uh, last week I mentioned that kind of game is called a roguelite. Mm-hmm. You know, it you're not supposed to beat it without dying, right? The the point is you are you are at a certain place, you go in, you die, you get a little bit stronger and then you try again and then you try again, try again, so on so on and so forth. I find that I don't get as frustrated with those games because I think I go into it with the knowledge of like, yeah, I'm just not going to be able to do it this time. Mm -hmm. Whereas there are other games that are more like story driven or like not designed in that way that I get really frustrated about because I'm like, I don't want to have to do this part again. I just want to keep moving forward because I don't have time for this. Are you kidding me? So it's really nice. Yeah. Nice. Also, I love all of the Greek mythology stuff. Yeah, the, the little Easter eggs and stuff in there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We're we are we're, we've done a little Hades since we talked last, and I, I'm still working my way through a Stardew Valley replay. I think my most interesting video game update is that my son is trying to 100% Kirby of the Forgotten Land. He's so close, but there are a couple things that he's missing that he hasn't been able to figure out, and so he's having me like sit next to him during particular levels where he knows he's missing something and mm-hmm. like look at a walkthrough on my phone so that I can like be like, Oh, 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 go back, go back, look more carefully. So, um, so that you don't tell him what to do, but you can. Sometimes I have, I have explicitly yeah. told him what to do, but mostly we're trying to, you know, just have You're... me like help him figure out kind of where, right. he, where there is something he's missing. You're getting warmer kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's been cool. fun. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, hey, Jeopardy. Jeopardy. Is what we are here to talk about. Um, so Monday, February 6th, we had the contestants Jesse Lampert, a sales executive from Los Angeles, California, Tanya Parrott, a librarian from Gainesville, Virginia, and Matthew Marcus, a software developer from Portland, Oregon, whose two-day cash winnings total $66,000. And we have the Jeopardy, Jeopardy round categories, months that start with Feb. <laughs> <laughs> all those uh, all those many months <laughs> that's like a celebrity jeopardy joke mm-hmm. yeah wine tasting 101 u.s museums add a letter at the start doctor who and parts and labor you will need to name the shared occupation of the two characters that they name in the clue <laughs> the thousand dollar clue of that category was francis mckay brendan flynn and Tanya wrote in and or rung in and first said, what are fathers? Catholic priests. Priests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, I mean, being a father and a mother, of mm-hmm. course, is, is a labor for sure. Although that doesn't necessarily count as an occupation, I don't think, normally mm-hmm. in that definition. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good moment. Oh, also, when, when Matthew took us over from add a letter at the start uh, to the $400 level of Doctor Who and Ken said, <laughs> you may be you may disappointed. Be disappointed. 
<laughs> it wasn't a, it was not a category about the television program, Dr. Who. It was about the WHO. Yeah. Doctors yeah. involved with the WHO. Yes. Yeah. Which was fine. It was, yeah, it was an interesting category, but you know, a bit of a letdown if you've been looking forward to a Doctor Who category. Right. Especially if you happen to be, I don't know, British and feel yeah. like you might have a leg up. Mm-hmm. Matthew does all right for himself, though. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. We had a triple stumper in the U.S. Museums category at the $1,000 level. This, to me, I, I'm not saying this as, like, a judgment thing. Like, for like for me personally, it's kind of a Pavlov thing. The clue is the highlight of the Submarine Force Museum in Groton. Groton? Groton? Groton. 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 Like, <laughs> a, like Agroton, uh, but not spelled yeah. the right way. Uh. Anyway, in in. Goofy name Connecticut is this first nuclear sub launched in 1954. And that's the USS Nautilus. And I, I, I just, I don't know. I learned that a long time ago. And like first nuclear sub is Nautilus. And that's all I know about it. I learned today or this week that apparently it is in Connecticut now. And I, yeah. So anyway, Nautilus first nuclear sub. Mm hmm. The Google pronunciation guide for Groton spells it G-R-A-A-T-N, Groton. <laughs> so Groton. I'm standing, standing by right. my pronunciation. Google yeah, agrees I, with me. I believed you. Mm-hmm. I, I trust that you know how to properly pronounce incorrectly these words <laughs> in New England. That's how we say it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Right, daily double number one is in the months that start with Feb category at the $600 level. Pick number 15. Matthew found it. He was at 3,400. Tony's at 1,000. Jesse's at 1,600. He wagers 2,000. Gets a clue. February 1989. Reverend Barbara Harris becomes the first woman bishop in this U.S. church and in the Anglican communion. And, oh, poor British Matthew. He says, what is the Church of America? But that is the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. We didn't just we didn't just do the Church of England nomenclature mm-hmm. and call it Church of America. Yeah, yeah, I, I see where he was coming from mm-hmm. because Church of England mm-hmm. is the Anglican Communion mm-hmm. uh, body for England, and that's probably his most familiar reference point. And so, not yep. knowing, you know, okay, Church of America, Barbara Harris is super cool. She spoke at a conference I went to nice. many years ago. Cool. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matthew is at 3,800. Tanya is in the lead at 4,200. And Jesse is at 3,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. Train routes, hot tunes, prisoners of war, S-S-ing the situation. Each res- correct response will contain a single S and then a double S. The Iliad and the Odyssey, and you can call me Homer. I know I have already said like multiple times about Matthew being a Brit, but the $1,200 level of Iliad and Odyssey showed off a a difference or maybe his just adherence to the like classic writing naming, I guess. I don't know Mm -hmm. really what to call it. The clue is these two, a god and a goddess with six letter A names, take the form of vultures to watch Hector challenge the Greeks. Matthew got it. He said, who are Apollo and Athene? Which, huh, if I yeah. if I recall in the in the Iliad, that is how it is spelled. 
mm. A-T-H-E-N-E in the translations yeah. rather than E-N-A. So mm-hmm. good for him for either flexing on that or just that's how he knows it. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I thought about the Nelly song Hot in Here. <laughs> really? It's a, yeah. I mean. I think about it every day. Do you? It's my it's my alarm tone when I wake up. <laughs> Start my day right. Came out in two thousand two. It's that only song, old enough. To that song is old enough to drink. Drink. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, um, Nelly. Yeah. Daily Double Two is in the "You Can Call Me Homer" category at the sixteen hundred dollar level, and Tanya finds it at the ninth pick. She has 5,000 with Matthew at 9,400 and Jesse at 3,400. She wagers 1,000 and gets the clue. Last name of Homer, a filmmaker himself, as well as father of a creative son. In 2015, there was a retrospective of his work in Portland. Tanya tries who is Winslow, which I think is a clever guess in Homer Winslow is a notable Homer. I think maybe the only like historical Homer whose name I could have produced before the category mm. the, before the clues started being read you know so I, I i like it in that you know i was like homer winslow's the only name who comes to mind i bet he'll come up here somewhere and he hasn't yet so she guesses him but that's not correct graining like like matt graining of the simpsons mm. uh, yeah and daily double number three is in the assessing a situation category you know as I'm saying that, it feels bad. Anytime yeah. I, I just saying SS always feels bad. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's pick number 18. It's at the $1,200 level, and Tanya finds this one as well. She's at $8,400. Matthew's at $9,800. Jesse's at $4,600. And she wagers another 1000 It's a clue unjustifiable or lacking crucial elements on the field at Dodger Stadium. Mm-hmm. And she gets it correct with what is baseless. Yeah, so, you know, ends up recovering what she lost to Daily Double Two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Matthew is, is in the lead with 13,400. Tanya's in a not-too-distant second with 10,600. Jesse's at 4,600. The final Jeopardy category is Inventions, and the clue is 1917's Elements of Trench Warfare said this Old West item was difficult to destroy and difficult to get through. And they all got it correct. They go to Jesse first. He has what is barbed wire and has wagered everything but a dollar, bringing him up to 9,199. Tanya wagered just a dollar with the same response. He had first barred, B-A-R-D, and then crossed out and then barbed wire. Mm -hmm. Um, So that gives her 10,601. And Matthew has the same response as well and a wager of 8,000 which brings him up to 21,400 and gives him his third win. Yep. And so that brings us to Tuesday when we have the contestants Greg Snyder, a call center manager from Las Vegas, Nevada, Carolyn Shivers, an associate professor from Grand Island, New York, and Matthew Marcus, a software developer from Portland, Oregon, whose 3-day cash winnings are now $87,400. And the Jeopardy round categories are which war nuts to you. Also an NFL team. Whoa. Oh, with O in quotation marks, we're halfway there (laughs) and living on a prairie. They did pretty well with the NFL team. Everybody got one and uh, they were all answered correctly. So Mm -hmm. no ho, ho, ho sports. Yeah. All answered correctly on the first try. Yeah. 
Yeah, no incorrect responses. I like the eight hundred dollar level. Sautés in a pan with a slight scorch. That is Browns. Yeah, I did. I didn't figure that one out. Mm. Chars. <laughs> the, ch- the, the chars. <laughs> the Sears. Yeah, I liked. I liked the four hundred dollar level. Nye and hater. That's mm. the bills. The bills. Bills. <laughs> bills. 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 I I just recently learned. I like. I, you know, I would have necessarily not necessarily had any reason to learn about it before the four hundred dollar level of which war. The clue is the destroyer HMS Sheffield is sunk by a missile, but Argentina loses at least twenty percent of its planes. That's the Falklands War, and like the only time I'd ever heard of it was as kind of just this passing footnote of like, oh, also the UK fought Argentina over some islands that are clearly next to Argentina. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of this thing. It's a big deal to the Argentine, Argentinian, Argentine people of Argentina. Know. Yeah. The people of Argentina, it like had a, like it had a major impact on them and still does. I've, I've, I have come to understand. Mm-hmm. I need to look into it more, but it's like, it was, it was pretty impactful from what I, from what I yeah. gather. Understandably. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I know. Shocking I don't think I knew of is, that until pretty recently from an episode of the crown. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Didn't watch yeah. The, crown. the crown man it is. Yeah. Did we note that this was a perfect round? We did not. Ken did. Yeah. Ken did at the end, uh, mm-hmm. going into double jeopardy. He definitely did. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very nice. Very impressive. Mm hmm. Yeah. All right. Daily double. Number one is at the thousand dollar level of living on a prairie. And Carolyn finds it at the 25th pick. She has 6,000 with Matthew at 5,200 and Greg at 4,600. She wagers just 800. So less than the value of the clue, actually, and gets the clue. This word precedes prairie in a city not far from Minneapolis that got its name in the 1800s as a garden spot. And she gets it correct. It's Eden. Mm -hmm. She seemed to know that. Immediately and regret betting so small. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matthew's at 5,400. Carolyn is at 7,200 and Greg at 5,200. And the double Jeopardy categories are library, literary title characters, the 20th century by country, science and technology, role model, holidays around the globe, and words with diphthongs. Really missed opportunity there to to play with that word. No, nobody took the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Shockingly, yeah, they did go through that category backward, or not not necessarily backward, but the last clue was the top clue, which has an explanation of what a diphthong is. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know what that is, and you were watching the episode, you're like, "What? How? These are just words. These are just yeah. words. What is uh-huh. what is special about this?" And then finally, it gets you know. Tells you that it is a sound made by con- combining two vowels. Mm-hmm. Yes. I sometimes forget that what vocabulary that I have is, is specialized vocabulary. Something that choral conductors give a lot of attention to they in, my, just, in my experience. They just love diphthongs. I, they sort of hate diphthongs. They right. love to hate them. Yeah, because they're not a pure vowel, right? Like mm-hmm. they sort of start as one and end as another. And so to get a unified sound, you need 
to kind of get everybody on the same page about how we're doing this ow sound or whatever. Right, exactly. Are you turning it into two syllables? Are you just skipping one of them? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you make that work? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, if you <laughs> if you haven't ever really had to think about that, I can see how that would not be, you know, a word that you just know what it means. Right. I just not I don't necessarily want to take a long time talking mm-hmm. about it, but the $1600 level of literary title characters, I just need to throw out that I really don't like that book, A Prayer for Owen Meany. Oh, okay. Thought it was I just it was if you're going to use symbolism I you just need a bit of subtlety for it to mm-hmm. actually be impactful. Yeah. And a prayer for Owen Meany has absolutely no subtlety about its symbolism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cause like the whole last like third of the book is Owen Meany just saying, Do you see how this is a symbol for what's happening now? Like it's like it's just what the whole last part of the book is. I, I like, read it when I was fourteen and I was like, This is so deep. It's so deep. It worked really it, well for me at age fourteen. And r- sure. Yeah, I think you are absolutely right. <laughs> it just it took you know, it took all of it away. And maybe that's just like me being bitter about like wanting to be the clever person who figures out all of the symbolism on his own or whatever. Mm-hmm. But man, I just, I remember I got to the end of that book and I was like, man, that was thoroughly dissatisfying. <laughs> like I, I genuinely did not care about the characters at the end because it was so obviously like literary exercise for this author. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Sorry, um, I said I didn't want to take a long time, and then yeah. I'm going to take a long time. Oh well, now now can we can can I be pedantic about something, which is the two thousand no. dollar level of holidays around the globe? One and you. a half billion Muslims mark the end of the fasting month of Ramadan with this mm-hmm. holiday. Fittingly, mm-hmm. it rhymes with feed, and Matthew got it. Eid is what they're looking for, and I knew that that was what they were looking for. But Eid just means festival, and there is more than one. There, Eid. Mm-hmm, there are multiple Eids. Yes, yes, because Eid just means festival. And so, yeah, so Eid al-Fitr is the one that they're referencing here. But clearly you had to just answer Eid to make it fit. Yeah. And that's what I like. I had that same thought. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's more to that name, which Mm -hmm. would make it not rhyme with feed. Right. Yeah. So, you know, you had to give an insufficiently specific answer, in my opinion, to make it fit the, the rhyme clue. Yeah. 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 Didn't care for that one. Mm-hmm. Daily Devil number two is in science and technology at the $1,200 level. Pick number seven, Greg locates it. He's at 8,800. Matthew's at 10,200. Carolyn is at 6,400. He wagers 5,000 and gets a clue. Some organisms, including certain bacteria, are described as this, meaning they don't require oxygen to survive. And he gets correct with what is anaerobic. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in Holidays Around the Globe at the $1,200 level. And Greg finds this one as well. It's at the 15th pick. At this point, he's at 16200 in a pretty solid lead with Matthew at 12200 and Carolyn at 8000 He wagers 4000 which is the exact difference between his score and Matthew's score. And he gets the clue the temperature during Finland's Midsummer Festival is around 210 degrees. Okay, inside these, a traditional part of the holiday. He tries what are igloos. Everybody's just doing their best up there, but that's a very funny wrong answer because if it's 210 degrees inside an igloo, your igloo's going to have a problem. Yeah. (laughs) There will be structural Uh, issues. Saunas is what they were looking for here. Yeah. 
I like a good sauna. Yeah. So he drops down. Uh, and at that point, Matthew kind of takes over the rest of the round. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matthew's at 19,800. Carolyn is at 10,800 and Greg is at 13,000, which are all good scores. Matthew just kind of got himself in a good spot there. Mm-hmm. And the final jeopardy category is word origins. And the clue, this Sanskrit word referring to a spoken word or phrase comes from a word for to think. Carolyn got it correct with what is mantra and wagered 9,001. So she moves up to $1 above Matthew. Greg gave, as Ken, as Ken says, probably the most correct response up here, mm-hmm. which is what is my lovely wife? Uh, and he wagered 13,000. So unfortunately he loses all of his, all of his money, but mm-hmm. You know, on national television, get some brownie points, I hope. Yeah. And Matthew got it correct with what is mantra, added 7,000, and which is <clears throat> a little bit more than a cover bet, and wins his fourth day. Mm-hmm. I was, I was thinking of the word pundit. I didn't think of mantra. Interesting. I thought, I thought pundit, which is also from sanskrit from a word meaning learn learned or skilled oh so i thought it was coming from a word that means blowhard or person <laughs> who talks more than they think yeah nope nope hmm. um yeah so there it was possible to head in the wrong direction on that one for sure for sure um, yeah oh yeah, yeah. So Wednesday, we have the contestants Dan Wool, a high school history teacher from Forest Hills, New York, Becky Mulder, a social media specialist from Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matthew Marcus, a software developer from Portland, Oregon, whose four-day cash winnings total $114,200. And the Jeopardy round categories are Show Me, Mis- Show Me Missouri Showbiz People, The Seashore, see in quotation marks, Squirrels just want to have fun. <laughs> so good. Ends with the same two consonants, acts of Congress, and also a baseball term. The thousand dollar clue was a triple stumper in baseball. The clue is, and here's the non-pitch synonyms for this include to resist or refuse. That is a balk. Have you heard that term before in baseball? Not in baseball. No. That that is one that rarely happens now because. Pitchers are, you know, properly trained and understand the game, but it's, it's like, it's basically if the pitcher screws up and kind of tricks the batter or the runner on base, like they're not allowed to do things that are, you know, particularly deceptive. And if they do, then the runner gets to advance or the, yeah. (laughs) So that's why. On the pitcher's mound, you have the rubber strip. Mm-hmm. And once the pitcher sets with their foot against the rubber, they have to, if their foot is on the rubber, they have to throw home. They can't like start to throw, pretend to throw home and then throw to first base to throw the runner out or something like that. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it is a ball. Or if you just don't throw the ball at all, like if you keep your foot and you start your motion toward home base and then you just don't throw it at all, it's still a balk. And there is one umpire who I think is still working, who just loves to call that on people. And he's hmm. like the only one. I think his name is Bob Davidson or something like that. 
Bach and Bob. All I know is that anytime he is umping, my dad is just constantly yelling at the TV. <laughs> anyway, that's just a little bit of baseball for you. There you go. That's what a Bach is. Yeah, that was that was new for me. It doesn't come up very much yeah. anymore. <laughs> Unless that one guy. Yep. We had a we had a Utah contestant on stage, but Dan from New York was the one who got the got the correct response about the act, the congressional act about polygamy. The, the clue referenced Utah. Yep. Yep. Because it was legal there. Mm hmm. All right. Daily double number one is just below that Utah clue in the acts of Congress. It's at the eight hundred dollar level. Matthew finds it. It's only pick number three, so he's only at 400. Becky's at zero, Dan's at 600, and he wagers 1,000. And he gets the clue. Talk about landmark legislation. A 1935 act authorized two national historic landmarks, in, and this colonial Virginia capital was among the first. And he guesses what is Richmond, but it is not Richmond. It is Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Also known as Colonial Williamsburg. So he drops down. But... He's only like 600 in the red. And by the end of the Jeopardy round, he has brought it back. He's at 5,000. Becky is at 1,600. But Dan is in the lead at 6,000. And the double Jeopardy categories are I'm Henry VI, I am. The Corporate Structure. Comedy Time. I before E. And they mean immediately before E. The Fine Arts. And that's Dedication. I think... Claire McNair noted this on Twitter, how strange it was to see a Jeopardy clue in lowercase. Yeah. You don't even have to know what the words are to know what the answer is there. Yep. Yeah. Because they've, uh, they've done that before. And mm-hmm. it's always E.E. E. Cummings. Yep. Even I knew that one. Mm-hmm. It's a poetry question. Yeah. Like the words almost don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Although it is, it is kind of badass that he, do we say that on the podcast? I don't remember. Sure. Uh, that he self-published a work that 14 publishers had rejected and called mm-hmm. it No Thanks. Yeah. That is pretty cool. Yeah. It's a baller move. I thought the $2,000 clue of fine arts was awfully easy. Mm, one of yeah. the famous works, one of the most famous works by this Belgian surrealist is a painting of a pipe that says, this is not a pipe. That's Magritte. I feel like if you're going on Jeopardy and you've studied any amount of art, you're going to know Magritte. Right. And this is not a pipe. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like you'd know it more than maybe Isadora Duncan or probably more than Offenbach. Yes. Or, you know, like. <laughs> it is, it is I, really funny that they put that at $2,000 with Offenbach I, at the $1,200 level. Yeah. Yeah. Offenbach yeah. is like that that B or maybe even C tier composer in uh-huh. terms of like looking backward in history. Like, he was well known in his time. He had some popular stuff, but he, yeah, his name is not mm-hmm. up there with like regular old Bach, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I just thought that was interesting and weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. The corporate structure turned out to be buildings, buildings. named for buildings, companies. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which I think of that I was anticipating more about like organizational structures. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like what does COO stand for? Those kinds of things. Right. But yeah, and instead we got like 
the John Hancock Tower and the Woolworth Building and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And a real, real mislead there in the $800 clue. It says a Chicago building and it's going to show a picture and you're immediately like, oh, boom, Sears Tower. Mm-hmm. But it was not, apparently, as the Palmolive Building, which I was unaware was a thing. And mm-hmm. I have spent a good amount of time in Chicago. I My whole mom's side of the family is from Chicago. I did not know that was a thing. Yep. So, anyway. Yeah, news to me as well. That corporate structure category is where we find Daily Double number two. It's at the $1,600 level, and it's the 15th pick. Dan finds this one. He's at... 10,000 with Matthew at 13,000 and Becky at 5,200. And he makes it a true daily double. Yeah. Which. I, I really like the move. I mean, there's not, you're halfway through the round. So there, the, there's still a decent amount of money left on the board, but you've just watched Matthew have like three of his, well, two of his games were runaways and the other two, he, one fairly easily. I shouldn't say easily, handily. Mm-hmm. So I like yeah. that move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he gets the clue. British architect Richard Rogers designed one Lime Street, the London headquarters of this venerable insurance company. And he gets it correct with Lloyd's of London. Yeah. So jumps out into the lead. And then four clues later, Matthew finds daily double number three it's in the that's dedication category at the sixteen hundred dollar level he's at fifteen thousand eight hundred yeah dan's at twenty two thousand and becky's at fifty two hundred and he wagers six thousand which would put him just about tied if he gets it correct he got the clue though his son would star in kids books this brit dedicated the red house mystery to his dad a fan of detective stories and he doesn't know he's clearly feeling the pressure because it's about a brit and uh, he guesses who is Arthur Conan Doyle, but that is A.A. A. Milne. Mm-hmm. And that big hit to his score kind of seals the game. It's close. It gets close. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Dan has increased his score. He's up to 26,400 at this point. And Matthew has 13,000. So... Like as close as you can be to yeah, catching had, without. If he had 200 more, it would not be a lock, but yeah. he doesn't. So Dan so has a lock. Is. Becky's at 5,200. The final Jeopardy category is European cities. And the clue is alphabetically the first German city in encyclopedias. It was also the first one taken by the Allies in World War II. And Becky doesn't come up with anything. She's wagered 5,100. So that drops her down to 100. Matthew gets it with what is Aachen and a wager of 2,500. And Dan has it as well. He's wagered 399, which is the most he can wager without risking his lock. Mm -hmm. So that brings him up to 26,799 and gives him the win. Yep. And Matthew has a four game total. 114,200, which is a really good score for four games, probably good enough to get him into the next tournament. Mm-hmm. Most likely. Yeah, so we may see him back. In seven months or so. Mm-hmm. Eight months. 
Nine months? I don't know. So on Thursday, we have the contestants Mira Hayward, a writer from Portland, Oregon, Scott Perry, an associate professor of history from St. Petersburg, Florida, and Dan Wool, a high school history teacher from Forest Hills, New York, who just won $26,799. We have the Jeopardy round category, South American Geography, Music for Sharks, Lifelines, World, in quotation marks, on their fast food menu and put it in your ordinal. <laughs> that the $200 clue of music for sharks. This kid's song by South Korea's educational outfit, Pinkfong, became an international sensation. And when Mira rang in, she said, What is baby shark do 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 do? And they accepted it, even though the do 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 is not actually part not of the title. Not part of the but, title. Yeah. But I think that's, I think that's fair. Because mm-hmm. that is also what my three-year-old calls it when she wants to listen <laughs> to Baby Shark. She says, can we listen to Baby Shark? Do, 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 do. Yep. And I say, okay. Because, mm-hmm. sure, at least you're not screaming. Yep. I did not know the $1,000 level once bitten, twice shy is a Grammy-nominated tune by this hard rock band whose name is a type of shark. And I thought to myself... I do not know if Great White is a band, and I don't know if Hammerhead is a band, but it's one of those two for sure. Both of those sound like good <laughs> band names, and honestly, Hammerhead sounds like a better band name than Great White. But Great White was the correct response. Yeah. Yeah. Too, too bad. Mm-hmm. Really, really feels like it should have been Hammerhead. I, I had a little debate with myself about whether if I were on the stage, I would ring in and try one of those. Mm-hmm without any musical knowledge just like just just see if i could get the thousand dollars try it out yep yeah just just give it a shot right yeah we had a couple of like off by one letter responses the south american geography at the 400 the name of this the continent's highest peak may come from akon kahawak quechua for sentinel of stone mira rang in and said what is akanagua but dan got the rebound with what is aconcagua which has that extra mm-hmm. k in it. Yep. And then the $1,000 level of fast food, a two-piece Pacific cod meal, including hush puppies. Scott said, what is Long John Silver was ruled incorrect and then said Silvers as he was ruled incorrect. And Mira got the rebound with Long John Silvers. Mm-hmm. It is, of course, after his life of piracy, he retired to the shoreside to make... I don't know. I don't want to hate on Long John Silver's, but <laughs> not the highest quality of seafood, mm-hmm. I'd say. I'm sure people like it, and that's fine. You can like what you like. Yeah. I, I guessed wrong on the $400 level of the fast food menu. A Mitza pizza and a chicken habanero sandwich. Mm. I thought, oh, Mitza pizza sounds like pizza pizza, which yeah. is the catchphrase of Little Caesars. Little Caesars. I yeah. bet that's what the clue is. But apparently this was Domino's. I don't know how you're supposed to know. The only reason, like, I had the same thought and I was like, I don't think Little Caesars does sandwiches. Mm. That was the only thing that made me think it wasn't. But it definitely didn't lead me to Domino's. I was just like, is that Little Caesars? And I just haven't known that they make sandwiches because, I mean, I work for, you know, I, I work at a high school. I have mm-hmm. bought my fair share of Little Caesars because it is the cheapest option when I need to feed a group of children who are volunteering their time in the evening. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they were noticed that on their menu and it's not apparently. So. Daily double number one is in world at the thousand dollar level. And Dan finds it at the seventh pick. 
We're pretty early, so he's just at 800 with Scott at 1600 and Mira at 1400. He wagers 1000, the maximum, and gets the clue. These five words complete the Robert Browning gods in his heaven. And I feel like we saw him sort of count on his fingers. And then he ended up just saying, what is world? And so I wonder if he just somehow thought it said five letters. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Maybe he just couldn't come up with anything. I don't know. Yeah. So all's right with the world is the Mm -hmm. end of that line. Um, Yeah. So that drops him down a little bit, but he recovers. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, he's right back in the mix. Mira's in the lead by a little bit with 5,400. Dan's right behind her with 5,200. And Scott is at 1,200. So he picks first in Double Jeopardy, where the categories are eponyms, American history, Oscar-winning women, autobiographies, chemistry, and you're on the world money. I liked that one. Yeah. World money. That was was fun. Was it was it you or was it a guest? I feel like it was a guest who talked about like recognizing the kind of consonant vowel structure of Georgian names. Oh, I don't think that was me. I don't think I know anything about that. Oh, man. I don't remember who it was who were like on the podcast was talking about like way back in the day for whatever reason, I learned how to recognize Georgian like name structure or something. Mm. So the $2,000 clue, the 200 Lari note of this former Soviet Republic is fronted by national hero Kakutska Cholakashvili. I have, I have no idea, but Mira knew it. She got it immediately with what is Georgia. Mm -hmm. And that just reminded me of that. I was like, yeah, oh man, weird. That is a thing that like, apparently you can know. You just recognize Georgian names. Yeah. I can recognize Armenian names, but okay, yeah, okay, but which came, came up, but like they were looking for something else. Uh, yeah, Good. it was not that. Yeah, um, Pete Holmes was a triple stumper in the autobiographies at the twelve hundred dollar level. Um, the clue is comedy sex god tells the story of this funny man seen on HBO and here, and they showed a picture. No one even guessed, and my wife follows Pete Holmes on Instagram or wherever, and he was simultaneously elated to be a Jeopardy clue and humbled that nobody knew who he was. Mm -hmm. Mira almost had a miss and then corrected herself, I think. I'm not sure it's quite reflected in J-Archive. At the $400 level of autobiographies, Chris Kyle's memoir and basis Mm -hmm. for a film is subtitled The Autobiography of the Most Lethal This in U.S. Military History. And she initially responded American Sniper, which is the title of the film, but just Sniper I think is the is the memoir title, right? You, right. I, w- I right, would assume, yeah. right? The most lethal sniper in yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Yep, she did. Yeah. All right, daily double. Daily double number two is pretty late in the round. It's pick number twenty three. It's in the eponyms category at the two thousand dollar level. Mira finds this one. She's at thirteen thousand. Dan is at ten thousand four hundred. Scott's at sixty four hundred. She wagers two thousand and gets the clue. This type of airtight seal comes from the Greek name of the Egyptian god of learning, known for magical powers. And she guesses what is vacuum, but that is hermetic, apparently from Hermes Trismegistus. Hmm. Trismegistus. Hmm. I mean, I got the Hermes part, did not get the rest of it. Yeah, and Daily Double number three is the very last clue of the round they have all been searching for it we see dan like you know sort of 
wavering over whether to head for chemistry 400 or 2000 at the 29th pick and he heads for Mm -hmm. 400 and that's not it but he gets the 400 so then he is the one to find the daily double at the two thousand dollar level he is at eleven thousand six hundred at this point mira is one thousand dollars behind him with ten thousand six hundred and scott is at fifty six hundred he wagers just five hundred so he decides he's not going to risk the lead and he gets the clue cerium and yttrium are two of these elements that despite their name are abundant on our planet and he gets it correct it's the rare earth elements yep so at the end of the double jeopardy round the scores are basically what we just heard Dan's at 12,100, Mira's at 10,600, Scott's at 5,600. Final Jeopardy category is theater history. And the clue, in 1904, wearing a harness, actress Nina Busicol became the first to play this character on stage. Scott wrote, who is Mother Courage? That is incorrect, and he wagered everything but $2. Mira got it correct with who is Peter Pan? And wagered Mm -hmm. 4,000. And Dan missed it. He wrote, who is Pygmalion? And wagered 9101. So that means Mira is the champion coming from second place. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, we have the contestants Libby Shu, a lecturer and associate director from Revere, Massachusetts. Miles Karp, a journalist and consultant from Western Florida. And... Mira Hayward, a writer from Portland, Oregon, whose one-day cash winnings total $14,600. And we have the Jeopardy round categories before they were Supreme Court justices, don't fall in, five-letter double Z words, all kinds of books, hotels named for people, and Super Bowl heroes with Kevin Burkhart. Hmm. Yes. Going back to the introductions of the, of the contestants, I'm... Uh, curious as to why you uh, put such a an enunciated r on revere <laughs> because i don't really have a massachusetts accent i know i know <laughs> it's just were... so much fun for me though when i hear yeah. it that way. yeah 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 anyway yeah i'll probably cut that anyway yeah <sighs> i guess i should i said with kevin burkhart he introduced the category but there were a bunch of different like Fox people. NFL people yes. presenting those clues. Mm-hmm. I have a quibble with the thousand dollar level of five letter double Z words. Mm. I I have a quibble that it's even that was even in that category. The clue was female singing voice between soprano and contralto. And Libby rang in and gave the response they were looking for, which is mm-hmm. mezzo. Right. But mezzo just means middle. Right. It's like. It, it's a mezzo soprano. Yeah, it's a mezzo. I, I'm, I'm a mezzo soprano. Right. And mezzo is mm. like, it's like a, it functions like a pre- prefix, right? Like. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a, sh- it's a shorthand. Like if you yeah. say someone is a mezzo, you understand that they are referring to mezzo soprano, but mm-hmm. I don't know. That seems a bit wide of an interpretation yeah. for me for that particular clue. Yeah, I don't I don't like it being described as between soprano and contralto. Yeah. Because because I feel like it's a a sort of soprano. Mezzo does get used as a shorthand. I mean, I guess may, maybe a counterpoint on the like it's not a it's not a word that I was thinking is like, you know, cello, right? Or or piano, the instruments. Yeah. Uh 
those are both shortenings of the full names of the of those full name. instruments. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. But like, if somebody said to me, "Oh, you're not a soprano, you're a mezzo," <laughs> like you don't know what you're talking about. Well, I mean, that depends on who who you're asking. Yeah. And that's yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. I have you have changed my mind. Yeah. Mira did very well in the Supreme Court justices category. Mm-hmm. Um, she knew there was a Frankfurter. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I ever knew that. When mm-hmm. she said that out loud, I was like, ha ha, what a funny joke. <laughs> and it was correct. So it was yeah. a funny joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Felix Frankfurter. I mean, I took a constitutional law course at Harvard, so maybe maybe Felix Frankfurter was unduly highlighted. But <laughs> that's fair. You know what? That's a good point. Maybe that's why I don't. I did not go to wherever that is he went. Yeah. Uh, what was Felix Frankfurter known for? I don't remember anymore. Inventing the hot dog, of course. Yes, of course. Daily Double number one is in that Supreme Court justice category down at the $1,000 level. Mira finds it at pick number 26. She's at 5,600. Miles is at 2,200. Libby is also at 2,200. And she wagers just 1,600. Gets the clue in in 1973. Became the Arizona Senate Majority Leader. And she knows that that is Sandra Day O'Connor. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round... Mira is up to 9,200 miles and is at 2,600, and Libby is at 2,200. And we have the double jeopardy categories Ocean Life, Poets Rhyme Time, Fashionable Etymology, An Endless Category, Western Europe, and The Miami Vice Squad. Mm-hmm. Which I think was really less about regular characters on Miami Vice and more like well known people who made appearances on the show. Yeah. I am not super familiar with Miami Vice, but I, I don't know. I thought that was a, that was fun. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Category yeah. Too. Yeah. I've never mm-hmm. watched, never watched a moment of Miami Vice, but mm-hmm. I still enjoyed it. I also really like the poets rhyme time category. Mm-hmm. Cause of course I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had not ever I think, like, heard this word at the $2,000 level, though. No, me neither. Lord Alfred's Blessings. Libby tried what are Tennyson's denizens, but they were looking for Tennyson's Benisons, which I have never heard of that. No, and and you know what? I think the Jeopardy writers are trying something out here where they're like, we're Jeopardy. We can just make stuff up. (laughs) And who's going to question us? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, what happened here. Uh, that seems unlikely, but <laughs> oh, then one, then whoever it is on the Merriam-Webster writing... got got this got this word. Uh, okay, look, you can't into tr- the historic record real you, quick after this you, episode airs. You can't trust everything you read. <laughs> yeah, okay? no, you can't. They can just change those web pages. They can just like, yeah, yeah. It's not that hard. It's just a quick little like HTML thing or. Hmm. You just, yeah, you just add something to the da- database. It's not hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, if one of the Jeopardy writers who listens to the podcast, because we're pretty sure one of you does, uh, if you want to reach out to us and, uh, I don't know, argue about it, we'd be happy to have you on. Because mm-hmm. I'm still convinced it's not a real word. Yeah. It's yeah, like my I'm... six-year-old who is 
exploring the possibilities of rhyme by just making up words that rhyme with words she knows. Yeah. I think that's what happened. That gets a little tricky pretty fast. So watch out on that one. Oh, I know. That's how I learned uh, a number of what what at least a couple different racial slurs meant as a child. Uh uh (laughs) When I was like, I just like said a thing and my parents are like, what did you just say? And I was like, I don't know. But your reaction tells me it was bad. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've had a couple moments where I'm like, all right, we're going to pull the car over. I'm going to turn around and be like, listen, you have no idea what the thing you just said means. You were just trying to come up with a rhyme. But I need you to never say that again and especially never say it at school, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it is important. You need to understand this. <laughs> Uh, sometimes I offer them the option of giving them a definition and other times I don't. Sure. sure. <laughs> yeah. It's a judgment call. I don't, I don't know what, what you're supposed to do when your child like accidentally finds an inappropriate word like that. I think you need to give them, I don't know, it depends on their age, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they're old enough to, to understand the and context. And what the specific word is also. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's true too. That's true. Yeah. But I think there's a. I think it's better if they're aware of kind of what it means and like why it's bad. mm -hmm. I think that helps. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Didn't didn't mean to go down that road. (laughs) Oops, there we go. Paradise Lost Man's Chain Hotels. That's Milton's Hilton's. (laughs) Yes, that was fun. Yeah, that was a fun category. Back to the innocent rhymes. Yes. Libby got the rebound on Mira's miss on this one, but the the two thousand dollar level of an endless category, I am uh, mm-hmm. once again a little annoyed that like you know precise wording of King James Bible is what we've decided to make the thing. Uh, in the King James Bible, John three sixteen says, "Whosoever believeth in him will have this life." Mira tried what is eternal, which. Probably is a fine translation of whatever the Greek was. Probably appears in some translations. Who knows? Everlasting is what it says in the authorized King James version of 15, whatever, uh, mm-hmm. 16, 16, whatever, 1611. That's right. Yeah. So like what precise word was used in this one specific translation? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the, the way to, right. to handle Bible questions. A daily double number two is in Ocean Life at the $1,600 level, and Miles finds it at the fifth pick. He has $3,800 with Mira at 10400 and Libby at 3400 He makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. Named for its rubbery shell, this largest sea turtle can swim up to 10,000 miles each year. And he gets it correct. Uh, it is a leatherback. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is in the Endless category at the $1,600 level also. It's uh, pick number 23, and Libby finds it, so everyone found one. Yay, I like when that happens. Yeah, that's nice. Libby's at 5,800, Mira's at 13,200, Miles is at 16,000, and Libby bets it all. Mm -hmm. And gets the clue continuing indefinitely, or flowers such as daylilies and peonies. And... Uh, she gets it correct with what are perennials. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Miles is in the lead with 17,600. Libby's at 13,600. And Mira now is in third place with 12,400. We have the final Jeopardy category, European history. And the clue, until 1806, some German nobles included among their honors the title of elector for their role in selecting this personage. 
Mira got it correct with what is the Holy Roman Emperor, and she wagered 10,000. Is that a good wager in this situation? I don't know. Not really sure. Not convinced, but also I didn't really think about it that much. Yeah. I think... Let's see. What What does the calculator suggest? The calculator suggests keeping it pretty small. Yeah. But it, it's tricky. Uh, Libby missed it. Uh, she guessed what is Chancellor. She's wagered 4,001. That drops her down to 9,599. And Miles tried what is Kaiser and wagered 10,000 which drops him down to 7,600, which means that Mira comes from third place uh, with the only correct response in Final Jeopardy uh, to win her second game with 22,400 for this game and 37,000 for her two games. Yeah. She shared on Twitter that apparently just like a month ago, she had recorded an episode of a podcast or something about Holy Roman Emperors. (laughs) So it was like right on her, right on the, you know, the top of her mind. That is is great yeah yeah so that is the week and this is the break in the middle of the episode when we remind you that we have a patreon it's patreon.com slash potent potables you can slide us a few bucks a month if you are interested and able to help us offset the costs of making the podcast um We do have a little bit of exclusive content on there. We try and get the quiz questions up right after we record so that you can see them while we're getting the episode edited. I forgot to do that. (laughs) I guess you were not feeling saucy. I was not, damn it. (laughs) Last week, Kyle said he would do it if he was feeling saucy. So apparently I was not saucy. not, Not very saucy. We'll see whether I'm feeling saucy, but you can only find out whether I'm saucy if you're a Patreon supporter. So good one, that was good. <laughs> yeah, Patreon.com/slash/potables, and of course, there are more important things in the world than our saucy little podcast. So you can find some links to a few that we especially care about in the show notes. Um, Kyle, do you have yeah. deep dive guesses? Yes, I do. And I wrote them down somewhere and I need to fill mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are you talking about A.A. Milne? Of course I am. Yes. 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 Finally. Got it in one. <laughs> I don't think I've ever got it on the first try. Did, did, the, did the, the question come up and you were like, that is Emily Bate. It it certainly felt like it. Yeah. And she's there gonna was... slide right <clears throat> past that question about the Episcopal Church and like whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, I, that one was nah, that one yeah. seemed nah, I wasn't into that one. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, AA Milne was definitely the top of the list. There are a couple others that I was like, that could that seems like could be hers, but all right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So we're gonna talk about AA Milne a little bit. And I'll try and emphasize some of his non-Winnie the Pooh stuff, but I mean, how can you talk about AA Milne without talking about Winnie the Pooh? So we'll get into Winnie the Pooh a little bit as well. So Alan Alexander Milne was born in Kilmer, Kilburn, London, to John Vine Milne, who had been born in Jamaica, actually, and Sarah Marie Milne on January 18th, 1882. He attended Westminster School and Trinity College, Cambridge. He studied there on a mathematics scholarship, graduating with a BA in mathematics in 1903. While he was there, he sort of began his career as a writer. He edited and wrote for the student magazine Granta, collaborating sometimes with his brother Kenneth, and their articles would appear over the initials AKM. 
his work came to the attention of the leading British humor magazine, Punch, where Milne would become a contributor and later an assistant editor. He contributed humorous verse and whimsical essays to Punch. He joined the staff in 1906. He was apparently a talented cricket fielder and played on two amateur teams. One of those was founded by J.M. Barry and was made up predominantly of writers. So his teammates included not only J.M. Barry, but also Arthur Conan Doyle, who was, yeah, who was Matthew's guess on that, on that clue that that Miss Daily Double, which I forgot to read back at the beginning of this, of this deep dive. So let's read back the clue. It was from the Wednesday game. It was the That's Dedication category in the double jeopardy round at the $1,600 level. Though his son would star in kids' books, this Brit dedicated the Red House mystery to his dad, a fan of detective stories. And Matthew tried, who is Arthur Conan Doyle? But of course, we know that is A.A. Milne. So, so Arthur Conan Doyle did actually play on this cricket team with A.A. Milne and J.M. Barry and P.G. Wodehouse. The it, it is possible that the it's I I'm pretty sure the name of the cricket team is offensive or at least it, no cricket team would be named this huh. now. So I, I feel like I shouldn't just like skate past it. So the cricket team was called the Allahak Baris. Yes, from the Arabic phrase Allahu Akbar, which means mm-hmm. God is great, and that's like the start of the like <clears throat> like Muslim prayers or like the call to prayer. Both, maybe, I don't know. It is, uh, it is definitely the start of the call, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, somehow, they they had heard that phrase and had the misconception that it meant, whoever, I don't know if it was Jay, J.M. Barry founded the D- team, so I don't know if it was his idea. But, who, you know, however this team name was named, it was based on the misconception that Allah, Allahu Akbar means heaven help us. Like heaven help us, we're not very good at cricket. I think was the was the like the joke, but no. yeah, yeah. It, right. Like it, mm, it is not the most offensive thing to come out of the early twentieth century, but like still not great, not great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. In nineteen oh five, Milne published what could be considered his first novel. Some consider it more of a short story collection, Lovers in London. Um, Milne apparently did not like it and considered The Day's Play as his first book. I don't Mm. recall what the date was for that one. He was writing articles. He was writing for for Punch. He was working on short stories, plays, screenplays, lots of different stuff in these years. He joined the British Army in World War I and served as an officer in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. He served as a signals officer on the sum from July to November 1916, but caught trench fever and returned to England as an invalid. Having recuperated, he worked as a signals instructor before being recruited into military intelligence to write propaganda articles for MI7 mm. from in 1917 and 1918. He was just, dis- yep. He was discharged on in February of 1919 and settled in Chelsea some of his some of the work he was doing around that time a couple of plays once on a time in 1970 oh no novel that was a novel once on a time was a novel published in 1917 a play called Wurzel Flummery in 1917 Mr. Pym passes by 
was first produced in 1919, a three-act comedy that had numerous productions and stage revivals and radio and television film adaptations. He became an early screenwriter for the nascent British film industry. He wrote four stories filmed in 1920 for the company Minerva Films, some of which survive in the archives of the British Film Institute. After the war, he wrote a denunciation of war titled Peace with Honor, published in 1934, which he retracted somewhat with uh, the the work War with Honor, published in 1940. In 1922, The Red House Mystery was published. It was a whodunit set at a house party at a country estate where one guest is found murdered and then another character arrives after the murder and sort of investigates all the people there, kind of Sherlock Holmes style. Uh, it, was, it was very popular and successful. Oh, he, had, he was already married at that point. He married Dorothy de Selincourt in 1913. She went by Daphne. But in 1920, their son, Christopher Robin Milne, was born. A.A. Milne had apparently pictured himself naming his son Billy, but they ended up, I think, each giving him one name, and that is how he ended up as Christopher Robin. But within the family, Christopher Robin was referred to as Billy Moon. Mm. Yeah. Uh, In 1925, Milne bought a country home, Cotchford Farm, in Hartfield, East Sussex, and they relocated there. In 1924, he produced a collection of children's poems, When We Were Very Young, which were illustrated by Punch staff cartoonist E.H. Shepard. A collection of short stories for children titled A Gallery of Children and other stories that became part of the Winnie the Pooh books were, were first published in 1925. So now we get to the part that, you know, kind of we're, we're more familiar with. Milne is most famous for his two Pooh books about a boy mm-hmm. named Christopher Robin, named after his son, and various characters inspired by his son's stuffed animals, most notably the bear named Winnie the Pooh. Christopher Robin Milne's stuffed bear was originally named Edward, which you'll encounter if you, mm-hmm. in the very beginning of the first Winnie the Pooh book, and was renamed Winnie after a Canadian black bear, which was named Winnie after Winnipeg, came across to England with his like owner uh, and was used as a military mascot in World War One and left to the London Zoo during the war. If you want to learn more about this black bear, especially if you have children, there is a nonfiction picture book called Finding Winnie about the story of this bear, which is wonderful. <laughs> so Christopher Robin saw this bear in the zoo, renamed Edward to Winnie. The poo comes from a swan that Christopher Robin Milne referred to as poo. It's not totally clear to me, even having looked at a few different things, whether Christopher Robin Milne started calling his teddy bear Winnie the Pooh or whether that was sort of, you know, like a literary device or something from A.A. Milne. The rest of Christopher Robin Milne's toys, Piglet, Eeyore, Kanga, Roo, and Tigger, were incorporated into the Pooh stories. And then two more characters, Rabbit and Owl, were from Milne's own imagination. The original toys are now on display in New York at the New York Public Library. The fictional 100-acre wood of the Pooh stories derives from the 500-acre wood in Ashdown Forest in East Sussex, where the where where the Milne family lived they were they lived on the northern edge of the forest and would take Christopher Robin walking in that forest and that's that's what the hundred acre woods is based on 
Winnie the Pooh was published in 1926, followed by The House at Pooh Corner in 1928. And a second collection of poetry called Now We Are Six was published in 1927. And those four, the two Pooh books, and then When We Were Very Young and Now We Are Six are all illustrated by E.H. Shepard. Milne also published four plays in this period, sort of separately from the Pooh works. Milne related a story of being told with each round of literary success that nobody would want to read any other genre from him. So when he was a humorist at Punch, he was told not to publish a mystery. And as a mystery writer, he was told that he shouldn't be publishing children's books. Nobody would want to read a children's book by him. And then um, once he was in children's books, he was advised against writing in other genres, particularly, you know, murder mysteries. Um, He was always quite clear that he wanted to write whatever he felt inspired to write and hated being constrained to a certain genre. He almost seemed to regret the success of the Winnie the Pooh books. He referred to them saying that he had said goodbye in 70,000 words to his kind of freedom to drift between genres that he had formerly enjoyed. He uh, was quite clear that he would not write more children's books, especially, you know, with commercial pressure to do so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another reason that he stopped writing children's books, and especially about Winnie the Pooh, was that he was amazed and disgusted over the fame his son was exposed to and said that I feel that the legal Christopher Robin has already had more publicity than I want for him. I do not want C.R. Milne to ever wish that his name were Charles Robert. I'll get to that later, but, you know, that's not really how it worked out. In 1930, Milne adapted Kenneth Graham's novel, The Wind in the Willows, for the stage as Toad of Toad Hall. I think we've mentioned Mm -hmm. that on the podcast before. Yeah. In 1933, he had a mystery novel, Four Days Wonder, 46 comedy novel, Chloe Marr. Um, And then in in these years, Milne and his wife became estranged from their son, who came to resent what he saw as his father's exploitation of his childhood and came to hate the books that had thrust him into the public eye. Christopher Robin went on to marry his first cousin on his mother's side, Leslie DeSellencourt, which further distanced him from his parents. During World War II, A.A. Milne was a captain in the British Home Guard in Hartfield and Forest Row. He insisted on being referred to simply as Mr. Milne by the members of his platoon. A.A. Milne retired to the farm after a stroke and brain surgery in 1952, left him an invalid and... By August 1953, he seemed very old and disenchanted. I keep quoting things that call him an invalid, which is really not what we say anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Milne died in January 1956 at the age of 74. Um, After Milne's death in 1956, his widow sold her rights to the Pooh characters to Stephen Schlesinger. Oh, so actually, let me backtrack a little bit and say that rights to the Pooh characters were left to four parties, A. Milne's family, the Royal Literary Fund, Westminster School, and the Garrick Club. So his widow sold her rights to the Pooh characters to like radio, television, and film producer named Stephen Schlesinger, who then he died and his widow sold the rights to the Walt Disney Company. And so that is how Walt Disney came to have the rights to the Pooh characters. Up until 2001, Disney had been paying twice yearly royalties to the other beneficiaries, but in 2001, they bought them out for $350 million 
Forbes magazine has ranked Winnie the Pooh as the most valuable fictional character. That was in 2002. In 2005, Winnie the Pooh generated $6 billion, and Mickey Mouse was the only character that generated more. I, I didn't find more recent figures, but like, mm. you know, <laughs> it's a lot. There have been a few authorized posthumous sequels to the Winnie the Pooh books. Return to the, uh, Return to the Hundred Acre Wood was published on October 5th, 2009 mm. by author David Benedictus with illustrations by Mark Burgess in the style of E.H. Shepard. Another authorized sequel, Winnie the Pooh, The Best Bear in All the World, was published in 2016. This one consists of four short stories by leading children's authors, Kate Saunders, Brian Sibley, Paul Bright, and Jean Willis. And in 2016, Winnie the Pooh Meets the Queen was published to mark the 90th anniversary of Milne's creation and the 90th birthday of Queen Elizabeth II, where it's a little, I think it's a little book where Pooh meets the Queen at oh. Buckingham Palace. Wow. Yeah. So that's a little, I mean, that's A.A. Milne and, and some about kind of, you know, posthumous poo stuff, but I wanted to come back to Christopher Robin. So Christopher Robin Milne was, not too surprisingly, relentless, relentlessly bullied through his school years uh, by classmates who knew his literary counterpart uh, mm -hmm. from these kind of famous children's books. So as discussed, he became estranged from his parents and married his cousin. And in 1951, he and his wife moved to Dartmouth and opened the Harbor Bookshop, which his family thought that was kind of a strange choice, given his kind of antipathy toward his literary counterpart, right? But right, yeah. the bookshop seems to have done well, and out survived him, but closed in 2011. Milne did occasionally visit his father after after the elder Milne became ill. After his father died, Christopher Robin Milne never returned to Cotchford Farm. Uh, and after her husband's death, Daphne Milne had very little further contact with her son. She did not see him for the last 15 years of her life, and she refused to see him on her deathbed. Oh. Milne did not want any part of his father's royalties. And he wrote a book about his childhood called The Enchanted Places, published in 1974. As he describes it, that book combined to lift me from under the shadow of my father and of Christopher Robin, and to my surprise and pleasure, I found myself standing beside them in the sunshine, able to look them both in the eye. So he found eventually some healing. Christopher Robin Milne died on in April of 1996. I started to look into like, Pooh, Winnie the Pooh, like intellectual property a little bit. And it's just super complicated. I'm very confused yeah. by it. But the, the you may have heard that Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain now. And the answer is like, yes, sort of. Yeah. A.A. Milne's US copyright on the Winnie the Pooh character expired at the end of 2021, because it had been 95 years since the publication of the first story that included the character of Winnie the Pooh. So Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain now, as are other characters who appeared in works that were published more than 95 years ago. However, Disney has trademarked certain aspects of their version of Pooh. So like Pooh with a red shirt is trademarked. Other characters that were introduced later, so anyone introduced in the house at Pooh Corner um, will enter the public domain at a later date based on their original publication dates. And then other countries also have separate laws. So it's just, it's just complicated. So Winnie the Pooh is in the public domain, but like only kind of. Mm -hmm. um, so A.A. Milne said, 
I suppose that every one of us hopes secretly for immortality. To leave, I mean, a name behind him, which will live forever in this world, whatever he may be doing himself in the next. So I think he did not have quite the writing career that he was picturing, but he certainly did that. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's true. So that's pretty much what I've got. There's probably a lot more, but you know, I also feel like I, <laughs> I, I'm sort of defying that the memory of AA Milne and his wishes by like focusing a lot on Winnie the Pooh. But I tried, I tried to highlight a few other things as well. Yeah, yeah. None of us can do much about the fact that it is the most popular of his works. Yep, right? that's so. that is true. All right. Well, are you ready for a quiz? I'm very ready for a quiz. Cool. We are going to further defy the wishes of A.A. Milne or, you know, by, by focusing on, on some Winnie the Pooh characters. I used a character as kind of the jumping off point for each question. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. so yeah. Question one. Images of Winnie the Pooh and the name Winnie have been censored in what nation in response to memes and images comparing the nation's leader to that silly old bear? That would be China. I was going to yep. make a joke about Winnie the Pooh being trademarked by the, the by President Xi. Yes. <laughs> but- yes, indeed. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, Winnie, Winnie the Pooh is censored in China because, because I don't know, memes saying that Xi Jinping looks looks like Winnie the Pooh and that like political stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There are still Winnie the Pooh attractions at shanghai disneyland however so i don't know it's complicated (laughs) china i don't know all right you're at 20 points and question two piglet is not the only famed young pig from children's literature actually there there's there's a bunch so i had to choose one Mm -hmm. Uh, what radiant pig was the protagonist but not the title character of a novel by E.B. White and several adaptations, including a Hanna-Barbera animated feature film with music by the Sherman Brothers. Oh my gosh. I'm blank. I, I, I'm, I'm questioning myself on the name, but I'm just going to say it because it's the one that came to mind. Wilbur. Yes. Wilbur is correct. Uh, yeah. Okay. Whew. I was like, Wilbur. No, that's something else. No, it's not something else. Mm, Wilbur. Yeah, it's Wilbur. Radiant pig. It's Wilbur, the radiant pig from Charlotte's Web. Yeah. I remember watching Charlotte's Web way back. And then the Sherman Brothers kind of entered my entered my my consciousness in, in association with Disney. And then I was like, watching it with my kids. And I was like, this sounds so Sherman Brothers-y. Who wrote the music? It's the, it's the Sherman mm-hmm. Brothers. There you go. Yep. All right. You're at... 30 points. Question three. Of course, Owl is, is one of our, one of our characters in Winnie the Pooh. Owls Mm -hmm. are noted for their large eyes, but surprisingly owls do not have eye balls because their eyes are not spherical. What shape are their eyes? This, This allows for the owl to have a large cornea with an eye structure that fits in its small skull. What shape? I am assuming it needs to be three-dimensional. It is a three-dimensional shape. 
Yes. Yep. Just running through your platonic solids. Yeah, and I'm trying to picture them in a in an owl skull, and like which one makes the most sense? Gosh, I mm, I I don't know. Let's say. God, what what the? I am I'm like getting nightmare fuel trying to picture these different like right. eye shapes in a in an in an owl skull. Inside an owl skull. Yeah, sorry. It gets a lot. Are they are they like pyramids? They're not. Okay. They're cylinders. They're cylinders. Yeah. That's okay. Funny. That's one okay. of the platonic solids, right? I, I have no idea. Amazing. You've been you've been saying that, and I'm like, I don't remember what those are. So, yeah, it might not hey. be. I might have. I might have. I mean, if you don't know what those are, then I guess I didn't lead lead you astray by saying platonic Ye- solids. But what are the? Oh no! I thought the platonic solids were all polyhedrons. Yeah, no, those are. Yes, you're right. What? Oh, darn it! Darn it! Darn it! Okay. I may have led you astray by saying platonic solids. I did. That's okay. I, it didn't. Yeah. I didn't think. Oh, could it be a cylinder? No, because she said platonic solids. That did okay. not cross my mind at all. All right. Well, I apologize for my for my misuse of the phrase platonic solids. Yeah, they're they're cylinders. Yeah. Wild. So like the, okay. the face is like is like a circle, but like they can't like if if they were a sphere that like was continuous with like that sort like it would it would be too big. They don't have they don't have the like the space for it. So they're like cylinders that just turn out like the circle, like they go straight back from the circle sort of. So they're still, they're cylindrical, which means that they can't like move their eyes to look left, right. Like we can, right. Cause they're not spheres, which is why they need to be able to turn their heads like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, you got a Milne when we started. So you are still at 30 points as we go okay. into question four. This is similar, but with a with a different actual subject than uh, than a a another question that I asked a few months back. Um, but I guess I I guess I have my things I had for Tigger was introduced in the house at Pooh Corner, and the plot of his first story revolves around the characters trying to find out what tiggers eat. He initially claims to like everything, but he rejects honey, acorn, and thistles before discovering that what he really prefers to eat is Rue's strengthening medicine. This so-called medicine that Kanga was giving to Rue was a common dietary supplement for children at the time. It is extract of what? You would find the same ingredient in other forms in Whoppers, whiskey, and vinegar. Hmm. Whoppers. Oh. Oh, wait. Is it? Is that what it's called? Now I don't know why it's called that. Is it malt? It is malt. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm realizing I don't actually really know what malt means. It's something, something to do with barley. Okay. Uh, I knew that, but also I don't know specifically. Yes. Uh, germinated... Cereal grain that has been dried in a process known as malting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, extract extract of malt, which was often given together with cod liver oil as 
yeah, as a dietary supplement. And I, I had a question about cod liver oil back when we were talking about vitamin C a few months ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. You're at 40 points. So question five. The character of Rabbit was originally voiced by Junius Matthews and later by Ray Erlenborn, Will Ryan, Ken Sansom, and Tom Kenny. But in the 2018 live action film, Christopher Robin, Rabbit was voiced by Peter Capaldi. That makes Peter Capaldi the sixth Rabbit, but he's better known as the 12th what? Doctor! Yes. <laughs> I, I thought about making you produce the 12th Doctor, and I think you probably could have done it, mm-hmm. but yeah. yeah definitely yeah. could have. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, he's the, he's the sixth rabbit. There it is. That's the question. All right. Well, hey, we're five, we're five questions in and you are at 50 points. And we're going to call our final category geography. Okay. I'm pretty good at geography. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bet it all. You're, you're staking a lot on my ability to write a geography question here, though. <laughs> I, hopefully I did a good job. You certainly are good at geography. So if I didn't botch my writing, then we should well, be good here, we'll I think. See. All right. In the house at Pooh Corner, this exchange takes place. It's snowing still, said Eeyore gloomily. So it is. And freezing. Is it? Yes, said Eeyore. However, he said, brightening up a little, we haven't had an earthquake lately. This might just sound like a little bit of absurd, humorous writing, but the seismology division of the European Geosciences Union did a bit of a deep dive of their own, and they found that there were three earthquakes which might have been perceptible at the Milnes' home between when they moved there in 1925 and when the house at Pooh Corner was published in 1928. One earthquake had its epicenter in Ludlow. The epicenters of the other two were in what archipelago approximately 250 kilometers away? Hmm. 250 kilometers. Archipelago. 250 kilometers. That would be what, like 150-ish miles, right? 5K, a 5K like is like today. 3 miles. 3.1. Yeah. 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 It's like 150 miles from their home. Okay. Do you want a little bit of a hint or do you th- do you have Sure, I'll take a hint. Yeah, okay. The archipelago archipelago is made up of two crown dependencies, both of which are known as bailiwicks, the the bailiwick of this and the bailiwick of that. And the, the, the names of these bailiwicks are associated with cows. I feel like I know this. Oh, man. I know what this is. I know what mm-hmm. this is. Go through the cows. What, what cows do I know? This is really bugging me. Oh, my God. They're... What is that type of cow? <laughs> I you don't this. you don't need to figure out the cows necessarily to give me the correct response because there's a collective name for the archipelago which is then like sort of the archipelago then is subdivided into these two yeah. bailiwicks but i feel like i don't know i feel like the cow is how i know it 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the Hebrides. Oh, that's such a good guess. It's the Channel Islands. Oh, yeah. Channel yeah. Islands. Yeah. The Bailiwick of Jersey and the Bailiwick of Guernsey. Guernsey. Okay. Guernsey was what I was trying to get to because I, th- I knew Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but but that's not like I know Jersey is a type of cow, but that wasn't the one that got me there. Yeah. Ah, that's yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Jersey and Guernsey, the cha- Channel Islands. Yeah. So there, there were apparently earthquakes in the Channel Islands in 1926 and 1927. And huh. the, this, the steep dive, it's so, it's so great. I should put a, I should put a link on the Patreon. It's like somebody has like in the, in this seismology department has tracked down like every earthquake in like in those years in in that region and then like applied like the calculations to figure out whether the earthquake could have been perceptible and found that they would have had at the Milne's home intensities of 3.6 and 3.5 3 is weak felt indoors by few people at rest feel a swaying or a light trembling intensity of 4 is largely observed felt indoors by many felt outdoors by very few and so concluded that this, these 3.5 and 3.6 would have been felt by stuffed animals lying in a nursery <laughs> and so that perhaps your you know has experienced some earthquakes recently yeah. at the at the time when the house at Pooh Corner is, is written and so he's not just being doom and gloom when he says, when he brightens up and says there hasn't been an earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was it was a great deep dive to just find out there in the wild. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, I'm sorry about the Channel Islands. That's um, okay. Aren't we all sorry about the Channel Islands? Yeah. You heard me, Channel Islands. <laughs> but thank you, as always, for podcasting with me. And thank you. Yeah. And thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are fans of Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. Yeah, and we'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. (laughs) 